Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. One was a 15-year-old boy and one was a 16-year-old boy. The 15-year-old boy I knew from the age of eight. My youngest children went to school with him and he had this way about him. We liked him. He was cheeky. And we liked him. I suppose we felt sorry for him. My mother was 73 years of age and she was bashed, she was stood on, her ribs were broken, her nose was broken, she was bashed in the head. 
She hemorrhaged from other parts of the body. Still was alive. There was still that fight in her. They tried to smother her, these two youth offenders. Then they strangled her after many hours of torture. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. And I suppose I would say at that very horrific end of the system, we need to keep in mind with those young people, as much as we would want revenge, as much as we would want punitive outcome for those young people involved, potentially they are going to be members of our community again. Having spent time in the system, coming out more damaged, more hardened, more violent, that is in no way going to contribute to longer-term community safety. I suppose that's what I, we just need to keep reminding the community that this is all about community safety. This is all about stopping their being victims. She'd rang me when the killers came to the house and I wasn't home. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash pod and leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. There have been a couple of examples where I've been approached by the families of victims and murder cases and thanked by the family members, and I actually find that devastating. It's very hard to deal with being brought face-to-face with somebody's grace in the face of such unimaginable grief is a really confronting thing. I'm going to keep this intro very short because no one is more skillful or thoughtful when it comes to describing our guest and the complexity of what he does than the man himself. I will tell you his name is Tim Marsh, and he chooses to spend his days getting to know people most of us would rather forget exist. I'm a barrister. I'm employed by Victoria Legal Aid as Chief Counsel. So in that role, I head up a group of about 23 advocates who appear in different sorts of cases across the state. And for my own part, I appear in mainly criminal cases, these days mainly homicides, and in particular cases that tend to involve issues around mental health and intellectual disability. I've always fancied at some stages I've thought I'd love to be a lawyer, but Working for legal aid always seems to me like a really pure, noble thing to do. Well, I'm not entirely sure how to respond to that. I mean, perhaps that means that I'm therefore pure and noble, but I don't (laughs) think anyone who knows me would agree with that. But, oh, look, I mean, it's interesting you raise that. I mean, I I think that's certainly a a commonly held view. And within the legal profession, there are people who'll talk about, you know, working for the light side or the dark side. And depending on who you talk to, that's either defence work or prosecution. But I actually suspect that the commonalities between legal practitioners involved in criminal law are far greater than the differences in the sense that whether you're prosecuting or defending, there is a commitment to firstly the administration of justice. And secondly, I think there's, there is a sense of wanting to make the world a better place. And wherever a crime is committed, you could argue that there has been some sort of imbalance, some sort of injustice that is then hanging 
And it's part of the process of the criminal law to bring that to a resolution. If you're prosecuting, you take the view that that's by constructing a case and identifying an offender and um, running that through to hopefully a conviction if you're defending. In some cases, that might be about ensuring that the correct process is followed. In other cases, it might be about ensuring that that the court sentences your client on the appropriate basis. In other cases, it might be in convincing a jury that the person is, um, in fact, innocent of those charges. But I think what underpins both of those perspectives is a belief that this is something that is worthwhile and that that's a process that's important to participate in. When we think about these things conceptually, it's very easy to be very clear cut about them. And when we have guests in here who have suffered a terrible loss, victims, families, we think about them very clearly and we're, we're very clearly on one side, you know. And right now you're such a nice man and you work for legal aid. So we're very clearly on your side. You're a nice lawyer. You've chosen a job that we perceive as being less money for working for people who can't afford big flash lawyers. And we think, what a great guy. And then the next thing I'll say is that... Sorry, you you were going to say something after that? Yeah, I'm still going. I'm still going. Because what I'm about to say is how it gets complicated and how we get to the truth of the complexity and how life is complicated. Because last year you defended two men who a lot of people would think, oh, no, I don't want them to have a nice lawyer who's going to take really good care of them and, and all of those things. Cody Herman, who was found guilty of murdering Aya Masawi, a young Israeli student who was walking home from the tram, and James Todd, who was found guilty of murdering young comedian Eurydice Dixon as she walked home after a gig. So these are the situations in which we're so black and white in the other direction, where every effort you make to humanise these young men, we get mad about. Every time you say, oh, but Cody Herman had a terrible childhood. This is a young man who never had a chance. This is a young man who had everything going against him his whole life. So many members of the public say, shut up, I don't care. There's no excuse. I've had a hard life and I've never murdered anyone. This is how life gets complicated and complex, isn't it? Sure, no, I agree. I think the question then that a lot of listeners have is, why do you do this work? Why, why are you passionate about defending everyone. So there's, there's a, a very um, long established principle in, in the criminal law that's known as the cab rank principle. Um, and essentially that is if you're a barrister, you can't say no to a brief that is marked with the appropriate fee and is in the jurisdiction in which you practice. And the purpose behind that is because even unpopular causes need good defences. So if we all picked and chose and only did the sorts of work that we thought we liked or represented the sorts of clients that we thought we liked, then that would create a sense of injustice that would be difficult for people to access competent legal representation. So, I mean, I think that's a sort of threshold issue that that the profession has a strong belief in the importance of the equal availability of justice. So putting that to one side, I, I think for me... The next issue really is that it's important to understand that this is a process Um, and it's a process that's inherently adversarial um, and it's a process in which there are multiple players, all of whom have particular roles to play. And I think what tends to happen in the sort of public debate about serious offenders and serious offences is that the public tends to cast themselves in the role of the judge um, that is, that, that they are pronouncing an opinion about what they think the ultimate outcome should be. 
But what gets missed in this particular um, debate is that the judge themselves don't just make up a result. The judge is assisted in coming to that result by a process that is adversarial and has two parties, one representing the accused person and one representing the prosecution. When I go to court and represent somebody like Cody Herman, it's not my job to be right. It's not the prosecutor's job to be right. It's our jobs to present legitimate arguments that are at different poles of that debate. So on a particular issue, I might say, well, um, for reasons A, B and C, I say that this offending uh, was not premeditated. The prosecutor might argue, well, I say for reasons D, E and F that it was. And it's the judge's job to then make a decision about what they think the facts are and what they think the legal implication of that is. Um, but I think that the point that tends to get missed is that it's it's not the role of the parties um, at the bar table to present a unified view or to be right about everything. Sometimes the importance is to have a robust debate. And the reason why I say that is because um, in order for judges to come to um, reasoned thoughtful conclusions that are going to withstand the scrutiny of the appellate courts, um, they benefit from a really strong and robust process in court. If we weren't there, and by we I mean both prosecution and defence, then that would make the job much harder for, for, for the judges. And, you know, it, when I read comments in the media following high-profile cases like, um, like Cody Herman and James Todd, one of the things that always is said is, you know, that he doesn't deserve a lawyer. Well, if he didn't have a lawyer, then the quality of the outcome that you would end up with would probably be really poor. Um, so there's something really inherent about that, about the nature of that contest in court that actually helps produce results that are going to stand up. And that's actually something that's in everybody's interest. And I don't think it's recognised often enough. I think it's, for me, I find it reassuring to know that that happens. I hope I never end up in court like most people wouldn't want to, but I feel reassured that everything's done to get the best outcome. But yeah, often just in anecdotal talk all the time, yeah, it's that they don't deserve a lawyer, lock them up, throw away the key. But I don't know if people just don't think rationally when it comes to these really high profile crimes. No, I don't think people do think rationally. And to be honest, I, I, I think in many cases, that's that's a big ask. And you know, I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy and, and tolerance for, for views, even if they're ill-informed, because they represent people's natural sense of grief. In some cases, they represent people's sense of fear. And I think both the, both the murders of uh, Eurydice Dixon and Aya Masawe were cases which really struck at the public consciousness in a certain way. Um, and I think legitimately made a lot of people feel very fearful. Um, and it is difficult to expect people to then step back and be completely rational and consider all the sides of the story. And I, I completely accept that. Um, and, you know, for the most part, my advocacy is, is in court. I'm not there standing on the steps of the court outside trying to lecture people about why they're wrong about their view about the case. That's not my job. But, yeah, there certainly are cases where you think, you know what, there's actually more to this than is being reported. When you're in court and you're delivering 
ideas, you're, you're trying to get ideas like this across to the judge or the jury, trying to make them consider ideas like personality disorders or childhood issues or, or whatever, trying to get them to see a perpetrator differently or more deeply. How do you cope with the grief of the family that's got to be bearing down on you? I don't know. It, perhaps they're making noises. Perhaps they're crying. Perhaps they're even saying things to you in that context. We've had families in here with us who have broken down and cried when they're describing the defence lawyer delivering speeches in the courtroom and he was saying this about this guy, about his childhood, and this is the guy who did this to my daughter. Is it a skill that comes to you naturally to be able to block that out and do your job or have you had to work at being able to push through that? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot in what you've just asked. I mean, I've, I've certainly experienced some considerable hostility both in court and out of court from the families and from people associated with the families of victims. Um, I can remember a particular case in Wangaratta where it was a very, very troubling case, but you know, the family were very distraught and I was sort of pushed and spat at outside court. And look, it's not easy. I mean, as I said before, you, you, you understand that these are people in an extraordinarily heightened sense of grief and that, you know, any, any emotion is being sandpapered by the court process. So there's an enormous amount, for, for my part, I extend a huge amount of latitude to people. A lot of people ask me how I sleep at night. I don't know that they're that concerned about my sleep hygiene <laughs> habits, but you, you get a lot of that. Uh, paradoxically, the more extreme reactions in court are actually the ones that are easier to deal with. So, you know, the heckling from the back of the court, the screaming and shouting at your client, um, swearing at that the swearing at your client as they're taken out of court. In fact, all of this happened to me in court yesterday. Um, but it's actually relatively rare that that's directed at you personally. Um, to be honest, what I what I find far more difficult to deal with are families who are gracious and um, yeah. Look, I've, 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 there have been a couple of examples where I've been approached by the families of, of, of victims in murder cases and thanked by the family members, and I actually find that devastating. It's very hard to deal with because. You know, sort of being brought brought face to face with um, somebody's grace in the face of such unimaginable grief is a really confronting thing. So, I mean, in answer to the first part of your question, yes, it's a thing, um, and yes, it affects you. As I said, that the, the more sort of um, histrionic outbursts in court are easier to deal with because it's just much easier to say, "Oh, look, I get it. I, I, I get you're upset." Having said that, I mean, I think there are ways that one as an advocate can go about crafting arguments that are not only more effective as arguments, but actually less offensive to family members. And I think the important thing here is demonstrating empathy, demonstrating that you understand the effect or the nature of the offending and that you are, that, that you have considered all of these things. So I think perhaps some of these submissions are more galling for family members if if it seems as though their grief or their loss is being downplayed or not taken into account. And I think if you're able to demonstrate that, look, I, I get it. I get that this is a tragedy. You know, I, mean, I remember a case some time ago where it was a, a manslaughter case and the, the prosecutor and I were, were having a debate with the judge about where the offending sat. Was it high range? Was it mid range? Was it low level? 
and we concluded that it was the lower end of the mid-range, which it was, frankly. But that's something which shocked the family of the victim because they'd never heard words like that used before. Well, of course, you're reminding us of the famous moment in the Pell trial. Describing the offending as as vanilla. As vanilla. Robert Robert Richter, wasn't it? What part of the process was that? That It was was during the plea hearing. During the Mm. plea hearing. And I sort of got the impression that probably they talk, they use words like Mm. that all the time. We just are unaware of it. Is that fair to say? Or maybe not vanilla, maybe. Look, I I don't want to comment about um, any other advocate or especially somebody as as well-respected as Robert Richter. But that Um, you have have to have words that describe ranges of offending that we don't know. Yeah, and and, and again, this is perhaps something that the general public doesn't necessarily see, but, you know, if you're appearing in the Supreme Court in in a murder case, I mean, for, for, for the individuals involved in that case, for the victim, for the family of that victim, there is no loss that they could imagine is greater. There is no catastrophe bigger that could have befallen them, right? It's pretty unlikely that they've trawled through comparative murder cases for the last 10 years in the Supreme Court and realised that what happened to their son or daughter was, in the overall scheme of things, probably not as bad as some other things that happen. Right? And, and, and frankly, nor should they have to. I mean, that, they don't need to contextualise their grief in that way. But regrettably, that is a task that the court has to do. The court does have to look at cases in comparison and say, well, okay, this one probably was more premeditated, but this other one was more violent or, you know, there was some post-defence conduct here. And, and try and arrive at a point where, they, where they're able to, in some meaningful way, make a comparison between cases. Right. But I mean, when, when we use phrases like it's at the lower end of the mid range, I mean, that's, that's like a red rag to a bull to a grieving family. And so in that particular case, you know, as soon as I got to my feet to start my plea, the first thing I said was, you know, whilst we might use phrases like lower end of mid range to describe this offending, there's nothing at the lower end of the mid range about this family's grief or about the senselessness of their son's death or about the impact on his children or any of the other sort. To them, it's an unimaginable grief. Of course, our task here is to try and put this in some sort of context, and I'm going to try and do that. Now, that took me all of about 30 seconds to say, but I think that acknowledgement did have an effect on, on the family because they could see that I was demonstrating that I understood that this was something that had had an impact on them. And I think advocacy that's done with care and empathy is not only less likely to inflame the grief of the families of victims, but frankly, it's just more persuasive. Because if you as a judge are listening to that, then your starting point is going to be, this person gets it. This person has thought through all of the things that I'm going to have to think through, and they're still telling me that this particular view is preferable. Maybe I'm going to listen to that. You had forensic psychiatrist Dr Andrew Carroll speak on Cody Herman's behalf yep. in the I Am Asawi case. And, of course, our minds were so full of her beautiful father who was here here in Australia crying, her sister. It was such an awful case. And, and then Dr Carroll started talking about Cody Herman's life. And, I mean, it was just breathtakingly bleak. At less than 18 months old, Herman was placed in care and admitted to a hospital with scabies. At age three, he and his sister were placed in foster care. Dr. Carroll asked him about his relationship with his father. He said, I don't really know much about fathers. I've seen them in movies. And it goes on. He said he was raised in a chaotic, insecure and dangerous environment. So 
Can you talk to us about Cody Herman? Is that appropriate? Are you are you allowed to? Would you consider it talking to us about your relationship to him, how you found him as a person? I thought the letter that he wrote of apology to Aya's family was quite extraordinary when he asked them not to give in to hate as he had done. Hmm. Was that his idea? Yes, it was indeed. And that, that actually came very late in the court process on, on the final day of the final day of the plea hearing mm-hmm. in so, something of a dramatic moment for me as he was being led to the dock he just passed me the note and was like oh didn't know that was coming mm-hmm. so sometimes these things happen but generally you try and avoid um, avoid surprises because the cynical among the population would, might say oh, i bet his lawyer said to do that no not at all i mean i, I yeah oh look and had 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 i coached him to write a letter, I certainly wouldn't have been saying produce this on the third day of the plea. And you're certainly not famous for such drama, so no, I no, wouldn't I have mean, it was a, Yeah, it was a genuinely surprising moment for me. And, you know, I thought its contents were were illuminating. I mean, in, in the ultimate wash-up, I don't know that, that that's going to make a great deal of difference. But um, if that was of some small comfort to the family, then um, then that was probably a positive thing. But, yeah, I, mean, I think it's clear from the evidence of um, Dr. Carroll that the level of dysfunction that Cody suffered in his early life was, was extraordinary, that the damage was probably really done by the time he entered long-term stable foster care. Um, and that had significant consequences for him really for the rest of his life going forward. You know, and as to your question, do I feel comfortable talking about it? Um, I'm cautious to talk about clients or former clients. I'm certainly not going to say anything about the nature of the legal advice that was given. But, you know, perhaps part of my caution is that, you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the fact that people are, for the most part, unprepared and unready to hear people who've committed terrible crimes humanized in any way that the mere act of humanizing them or providing any kind of context about them or their personalities is somehow seen as providing an excuse for their offending and so perhaps before i say anything further either about cody or anybody else i mean nothing that i would say provides any excuse for the rape and murder of a complete stranger but what i would say is i think I think there's a commonly held view that people who do terrible things are monsters, and it's a view that's often promulgated by the media. You'll read articles and editorials that will, in the headline, talk about somebody as a monster. And look, for my part, I think it's a really unhelpful way for us as a society to talk about serious criminal offending. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, whenever we use the phrase monster, it implies that this is a person who is in no way like us. And true it is, there are some people that I have represented in my career, and I'm sure every criminal barrister would be able to say the same. There are some people who are genuinely out-of-the-box monsters. But I can only think of one or two in 20 years. I can think of a lot of people who've done monstrous things, but they're not monsters. They are people who have personalities, people who have things about them that are likable, people who have things about them that are unlikable. They are people who might have a problem with 
drug addiction or mental illness or anger management or any number of other issues that at a particular time and place mean that they're capable of committing a certain sort of act. But I think whenever we use the phrase monster, I think the effect of that is to sort of reduce the dialogue about offending to a really infantile level. And I think as well, it distracts us from the fact that there are also some really potent factors about our society which probably contribute to offending. And as long as we continue to just demonize the individual, and anyone who commits a serious crime of the sort that we're talking about has every right to be demonized to some extent. But I think I think in some sense that sort of language lets us off the hook as a society where we don't actually then look at the systemic factors that led to a person being in that situation. And the thing that struck me when I was briefed to represent both James Todd and Cody Herman was how on earth do 19 and 20-year-olds with no prior convictions end up doing something like that? I think that's something that a lot of people thought. I certainly thought that. That's, I think, what scared me the most. I think, how does that happen? How can you even prepare yourself or be on guard for something like that? So both young men stalked and sexually assaulted and murdered young women whom they did not know in Melbourne? I would say that certainly that that description is accurate in relation to James Todd, that the, the stalking bit I'd, I'd probably quibble with in relation to Cody Herman in the sense that there d- doesn't appear to have been any prolonged contact between him and the victim prior to the offence. It was probably a matter of seconds or minutes before the attack occurred. It but, was quite uh, but, a short period of time yeah. as she got off the tram. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I'd, I'd, you're testing me on the chronology, but it would be a matter of a couple of minutes. Oh, the, the the attack would would have would have commenced within say three or four minutes of her getting off the tram. Okay, whereas James Todd apparently stalked Eurydice for roughly an hour. Yeah, starting at Flinders Street Station, then mm. up to Elizabeth Street. Is there any other commonality that you can point to with the two young men? Yeah, aside from youth, both of these men were from extraordinarily disadvantaged environments. Obviously, we've discussed Cody's. James Todd, there was a lot of discussion about his home life being very dirty. Dirty doesn't even begin okay. to capture it. He lived he lived in a state of squalor, which was quite honestly shocking to anybody who saw the photos of it. This was tendered on, on the plea hearing. It was something that the judge took into account. James Todd was living in that environment, sharing that house with both his parents and an older and a younger brother. There was refuse piled from floor to ceiling in every room. It's hard, in some of the photos, it was hard to even see where people slept within that environment. And he was living, in a sense, a sort of bifurcated life where he was going to school, then coming back to that environment shortly prior to, in fact, yeah, essentially around the time of the murder of Eurydice Dixon, he was completing a hospitality training course and he would have had the extraordinary circumstance of going from that environment into essentially a commercial kitchen where benches were wiped down and knives were put away and there was a high level of hygiene and then he would go home to that squalor. And in, in that circumstance, it's not hard to imagine why there were times where he was preferentially homeless. He would actually go and sleep in parks rather than go and be back at home. And similarly, Cody Herman, by this stage, had essentially the, he, his foster placement had broken down and he was living in squats and living on the streets in the Greensboro area, sleeping outside shopping centres. So both of these 
I mean, in fact, I think one of the most cogent factors in common that these were both young men who were living on the absolute fringe of society, living in circumstances of poverty, and for whom they legitimately had no belief that life would ever get any better than it was. Even James, who was in a course that was about gaining employment, he was in a training program. I understand his home life was impossible, literally impossible to live in. But of a day, he was in a course that was all about we're training you to find employment. Even that didn't make him feel like that was his future? I think he really struggled to conceptualise what his future might look like um, because his past had... You know, and I suppose from from an outside an outside perspective, one could look at that and think, well, why why would that not have given him hope? But I mean, one has to also understand that there also comes with that an enormous sense of fear and uncertainty about what the future might hold, because he literally had no template, no no way to know what what success might look like. You know, and I I I think with both of these cases, and again, I, I don't I don't in any sense want to take away from the individual culpability of either of these men they both made choices to do what they did and many people will have observed that other people in similar circumstances don't make those choices and that's a legitimate point but you know something that really struck me with both of them was that how how can we as a society let people fall so far so quickly seemingly unchecked well, and as you said earlier, it's not your job to defend them to me. I guess, though, it's an opportunity, which is not a great word to use, but for us to consider the systemic problems here and to try and fix them, try and prevent them from happening again, this chain of events. So, again, in a developed country, what mistakes are we making? What? For, I mean, for me, the, 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 the three things that are the most most associated, I mean, that you see time and time again in these cases are firstly low educational attainment, so um, dropping out of school early, mental health issues and homelessness. Mm. Cody Herman had, there were 2,000 pages of material from the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Association. So Cody certainly was in contact with agencies. Yes, lots from of a people, very young age. Lots of people knew about Cody's circumstances. How, how did he slip through any cracks? Yeah, I, I think um, in Cody's in Cody's case, the answer to that is a complicated one in the sense that um, he, he did have early contacts with area mental health services, and I think um, from memory it was the Origin Youth Mental Health Service, and there was some thought um, at an earlier stage that he had either schizophrenia or sort of an early an early form of it, and he received psychiatric treatment he received antipsychotic medication as a result of that now it transpires that with the passage of a bit more time that that's probably not the correct diagnosis that there was in fact this underlying issue of personality disorder i i think in cody's case he simply got sorted into the wrong bucket and this perhaps in turn reflects a patchiness in terms of how we deliver mental health services so You'd be aware there's a Royal Commission at the moment into the Victorian mental health system and no doubt one of the most trenchant findings of that Royal Commission will be that the system as a whole is very significantly underfunded to do the work that it does. But one of the other issues is that we have a very siloed or stratified approach to mental health services. So mental illness gets 
relatively well treated. We've got a network of area mental health services. We've got a secure psychiatric hospital. Personality disorders really are very much in the too hard basket. Then we have intellectual disability, which has become increasingly problematic in the post-NDIS world where there's been a real move away from the previous sort of specialist services provided by the Department of Human Services. And then fourthly, perhaps the most blighted category of all people who have acquired brain injuries, who in many cases struggle to access any kind of service. Then if you take any of those four things and start mixing them together, so if you have a person who has a mental illness and an acquired brain injury, then suddenly you have services each saying, well, sorry, we don't have the capacity to, to treat this person. Um, and then add on top of that maybe some self-medication with yeah. drugs or alcohol. Homelessness. And yeah, and then we have services who say we can't take that person. Completely. Mm. So, And that, that's the classic sort of confounding factor is that whenever you add drug addiction or alcohol to, on, on top of any of these things, then it just makes accessing services so much harder. But, you know, in response to what you said just a moment ago, I, I think home, homelessness is, is the key factor because without a stable address, I mean, almost all of these services that we're talking about hang off having a stable address. And if you don't have a place to live, then you can't access services. So the, the, the factor that you see most commonly in anybody interacting with the criminal justice system against a background of um, mental illness or intellectual disability is usually homelessness. Thank you to the following patrons for their support of Australian True Crime. Melanie Borsboom, Riley Spajic, Emily Rosatano, Emma Gross and Stacey Lenane. After the break, Tim talks coping mechanisms in the legal profession. Thank you to patrons Carolyn Elizabeth Margarita, Samantha Baliki, Melanie G. Firth, Hayley Pease and Ashley Mitchell. Of all the issues surrounding the troubling murders of Aya Masawi and Eurydice Dixon, one topic in the evidence against Eurydice's killer, James Todd, was of particular interest to many. It pertains to an increasingly common pastime in our culture that some believe is contributing to an increase in serious sexual assaults. Tim, can I ask, in the case of James Todd, it was widely reported that he watched a lot of very extreme pornography and what can you talk about in that sense? In, in terms of the evidence that was led in the plea, that the pornography use had was relevant for two reasons. The first was that James clearly had a... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A particular sexual preference when it came to appearances. So there was evidence that he had searched, used particular search phrases to, to look for women who probably broadly matched the description of the of the deceased. So there was clearly an, an element of sort of sexual stereotyping going on there. But the, the second, and, and from for, for, for the court, the more troubling aspect was that in the period of time leading up to the offence, there'd been an increasing reliance on consuming pornography that had repeated themes of coercive sex and strangulation and simulated, essentially simulated snuff porn, for want of a better phrase. And that was something which was able to be demonstrated from the searches that he performed on his iPad, both before and in the hours immediately after the offending. At the end of the day, I don't think the evidence in this case really established one way or the other whether the pornography precipitated that particular paraphilia or whether the internet just makes it really easy to find really specific pornography. And ultimately, I'm not sure that there's much difference or much meaning to be gained through having a definitive view about that. I mean, at the end of the day, he is a person who has a sexual paraphilia. um, And by that, I mean a sort of an abnormal sexual interest in a particular topic. And I can think back to when I was a kid, you might've found a porno magazine kicking around and behind the It was pretty, um, but you know, and then it was a matter of happenstance as to what was between its pages. But the idea that you could with, you know, a few search phrases find precisely the pornography that floats your boat is an extraordinary development. And and are you seeing a difference? Is it making a difference? Do you think in your anecdotally in what you're seeing coming through the courts that change? Um, I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's it's a it's a difficult sort of experiment to to, to know the results of. I hope someone's doing that experiment. I hope there's someone's, you know, doing some collating I mean, of data. Something that, that I've certainly seen in other cases is, is a very clear pattern of escalation of mm. pornography use that that seems to mirror the same sort of habituation stimulation response that you would see in drug addiction where a person is taking increasingly large doses of something in order to achieve the same effect. That's certainly something that that you tend to see. And, you know, I, I think the idea that, that you, you start with a, a vulnerable individual, and when I say vulnerable, in, in this case, I mean somebody who has that particular interest to begin with. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, somebody who is themselves isolated. So in James Todd's case, it could hardly be said that he was in a supportive family environment where there were there was checks and supervision on that. I mean, he was essentially leading a very solitary, isolative life. So I think he was vulnerable in that sense as well. So when you take those factors and then add to that the ubiquity of highly specific pornography, I'm not wise enough to say what the precise outcome of that is, but I, I can't imagine it's good. May I be so bold as to ask about your personal life, sir? You can ask. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder how this work that you do 
which is so intense and you're such a measured person. How, how does it affect your, your personal life? We always ask everybody, how do you cope with this? What's your self-care regime like? How do you switch off for switch off. want of a better word? Yeah. But yeah. Are you a runner? Are you a, a reader? What do you, you know, how does, how do you cope with this in your personal life? Yeah. So b- before I answer that in, in, in detail, once upon a time, I used to do a uh, crime fiction review program on the Melbourne radio station Triple R. And for years, I was reading and reviewing. You've got a beautiful voice. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a good face for radio too. But, um, but I was reading and reviewing multiple, uh, multiple crime novels uh, every week and uh, we'd do the show. And then since I've started practicing in criminal law, I don't think I've read a single crime novel. Um, so when it comes to reading, um, it's certainly not, uh, not crime. That's straight romance now. Yep, just, yeah, pure, pure <laughs> yep. romance for sure. Um, so how do I cope with this? Um, do you have a partner, may I ask? Uh, I do. I have a partner. She's a classical musician who lives in Paris. Um, oh. and I love that. That's really cool. And I think... As much as I know you, which is about, we're about 46 minutes into our relationship, I think that's perfect for you. Uh, the living in Paris bit is not perfect for me. No, but, um, the other bit putting that to one are, side, no, yeah, no, she's, she's extraordinary. Um, but uh, I'm divorced. I've got two kids um, who are uh, one in primary school, one in high school. In terms of how I cope, uh, the answer is um, intermittently. Um, there are some times where I think I manage the stress of this work very well and other times not. And, you know, I think the, the, the clear message that I've got over the years is that my own sense of that is not necessarily accurate. Mm. So there are times when I think, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. And the work has had impacts that I have not expected. So, you know, I, I do all of the things which you're supposed to do to cope with work of this nature, but stressful work in general. You asked before, am I a runner? No, I'm a cyclist. I'm a cyclist and a rock climber. I live out of Melbourne in a, in a um, semi-rural area. So I spend a lot of time in, in the bush. Um, and that's good both in terms of just having a different environment, but also a very a, a strong sense of, of work and not work. I try and eat healthy food. I try and get enough sleep. I meditate once or twice a day. I do all of these things. Is that sufficient to mean that my mental health is never compromised by the work that I do? Absolutely not. And there have been oh, two, at least two occasions where in the wake of difficult confronting cases, I've really felt the wheels start to come off and I have started to experience you know, adverse reactions, whether you want to call that uh, vicarious trauma, which is the sort of current buzzword, or you want to call it something else, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, in both of those cases, I found myself really consumed by aspects of the work, had a lot of repetitive, intrusive thoughts. I wasn't able to, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating properly, snappy with the kids, you know, just uh, just generally not coping very well. And I've made extensive use of psychologists through work and have used that to, you know, just have an opportunity to talk through and debrief. And it's interesting that psychiatrists, for example, so the, the, precisely the, the same sorts of psychiatrists that I'm calling as witnesses in these cases, they have a profession that's very much geared around professional supervision, 
where you have people that you go and talk to on a regular basis. You have peer-based discussion groups where you'll talk through talk through your caseload with each other. There's a very sophisticated way to managing the sorts of issues which they're likely to encounter. And the legal profession is, for the most part, doesn't do that very well on a systemic level. People will have their own personal networks, and that's that's terrific, but that's not necessarily going to work for everybody. Some people, for whatever reason, may find it difficult to access that and will suffer in silence. I was talking to a GP recently who'd recently started to work in the in the legal district in the CBD, and she said, uh, in all my years of practice, I've never had so many people coming in and talking to me about alcohol addiction and wanting sexually transmitted disease tests. Wow. So, Interesting, yeah. So that, that might suggest yeah. that the profession as a whole perhaps has some less positive ways of coping with the, with the stress of, of the work that we do. But it's very extraordinary stress. Yeah. And, and you're so busy just with your workload, so how do you find time to step back and was this period of time with these two particular cases the the herman and todd cases a stressful time they're, they're very oh, high it was incredibly yeah. stressful because these were one after each other yeah. as well there's very little time to to sort of catch my breath between them i was shocked when i saw that one person had defended both of those clients it's yeah. incredible you, the, st- you have a drink of water if yeah, you want to break there's a bottle yeah take your time it's interesting that you just reached for the bottle of water then when we were asking. I mean, I don't know if there's anything to read into that, but thinking about that time. Well, it's a bottle of water. It's not a bottle. I know. I don't mean a bottle, but I mean that we need a break to just yeah. think about that. That was. And I remember when you talked about the squalor in James's, yeah. Todd's house, so many people were speaking about that. Like I remember my parents talking about it, people at work, we were like, yeah, trying to discussing this in depth about how does that happen? It was just this mm. disturbing aspect of what was reported as well. Well, it's, I mean, that sort of touches on one of the, for me, one of the most fundamental challenges of the work, which is, I mean, I, I see my, yes, I'm a lawyer, but I'm, I'm, my role is, I'm, I'm a, essentially a storyteller. I mean, that, that's the nature of what's going on in cases like this. Mm. Um, you're telling a story and the purpose of that story is to contextualise the accused and contextualize the offending and there's a legal aspect to that so many of these arguments have to be rooted in particular legal concepts in order to get get the outcome that you want but at the end of the day you are trying to give the judge a sense of the person that they are sentencing and fundamental to that is creating a sense of empathy and connection and making the person's circumstances relatable or understandable now, sometimes that job's really easy. Sometimes y- y- the, the circumstances of the offending are really explicable or there is some particular hook that you can hang it on. I mean, you know, some, some, of, the, some of the hardest cases that any people do involve a culpable driving cases where the victim and the accused are known to each other. And the worst of all of these are driver kills their best mate sitting in the passenger seat. But there's a narrative there that's very easy to access, which is essentially that nothing that this court can do will possibly punish this person more than what they're already going through. You know, so there's a way to tell that story in a way that's, I think, immediately explicable and that we're primed to understand, we're primed to reach for. 19 years with no prize, raping and killing a total stranger, different kettle of fish. Where do you start? Where do you start to try and explain that or contextualise or humanise 
or generate empathy, it's a really difficult proposition. And the difficulty is that you're going to come up short. And I think there's a natural human desire, particularly around storytelling, that we want stories to have a conclusion. We want them to make sense. We want a beginning, a middle, and an end. We want a sense of this is how it started. This is where it started to go wrong. This is what happened. But I think in some of these cases, you know, you'll have 10 or 15 factors which are undeniably relevant factors, but there's no one of them or there's no combination of them that leave you as the listener to that story intellectually satisfied where you go, I get it. That's why that happened. There's still an element that is just unknowable. And I think that's just a really difficult ask for us as humans. We, we, we want things to make sense. And when they don't, it's a, it's a difficult thing to leave that thread hanging. And that's what these cases, I think that's the real challenge that they present from a from an advocacy perspective is that it's just really difficult to come up with a cohesive narrative that's going to be intellectually satisfying to everybody who's going to hear it. Difficult, if not impossible. What do you think the shelf life is for this job for you? Do you, do you see yourself doing it for the rest of your career or does it get too hard at some point? Do you... Uh, Again, a lot of questions in that. Sorry, I, yeah. No, no, um, you just moved to Paris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah house husband. Yeah, not with not with not with leaving my kids behind. No, but I don't think there's a that there's no safe exposure to work at this level. It's it's difficult and it's harmful. And the challenge for anybody who's working in these jurisdictions is to look after themselves and remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I'd like to think that there is, you know, a different. There's a other chapters to my career. I mean, this is my second career. I, I, I started, I spent nearly 10 years working in software development straight out of uni. So this is a very different move for me already. So perhaps there's something like something else in my future. I don't know. Having said that, although there are aspects to this job that I find really difficult, the central challenge, the central attraction of trying to make sense of things and trying to tell that story is something that I find just endlessly fascinating. And I like the fact that it matters. And when I decided to leave the world of software development, I left because I just didn't think that it mattered whether Telstra had another website or not. (laughs) Fair enough. You know, there's no day that I go to work now where I think this didn't matter. Thank you to patrons Elizabeth Anderson, Amanda Nicholson, Monique Lumley, Serena Brakey and Ebony Jacobson. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the Acast Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.